Well, good morning, church, again. What a joy to be opening up God's Word with you. Uh, This summer, we are taking a break from our journey through the Gospel of Luke's, and for the next six weeks, we're going to dive into one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, the story of a Moabite woman named Ruth. Now, if you don't know what a Moabite is, or you've never heard of this gal, Ruth, don't worry. Well, I'll be your guide and your travel companion as we explore this Old Testament tale of tragedy and devotion and redemption. And we're going to take our time. You can read the book of Luke in a sitting, but we're going to uh, not race through the narrative. We're going we're gonna to move slowly over the course of six weeks through this little book because I'm confident that God has a lot to say to us through the lives of these ancient figures. So without further ado, if you could, turn with me to the book of Luke. Uh, you pass the first five books of Moses, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's the eighth book in. We'll be in chapter one, and we're going to read just the first five verses together. Uh, the curtain pulls back on the play's kind of first scene, which is kind of a prologue that I like to call the fall of the house of Elimelech. So let's read these first five verses together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. This is the word of the Lord for us, the gospel according to Ruth. So that's our text this morning, and I have a simple question to start us out. What is it that we are reading? Well, in terms of genre, we're reading an Israelite short story. But that doesn't mean it's fiction, it's a bit of family history. It's the origin story that tells of the dramatic events that would go on to shape who this particular family would become. Yet this little book of Ruth is also something greater as well. It's a chapter in God's great narrative of salvation. The story of divine rescue that begins at creation, that climaxes in the person of Jesus, and even now continues in our own stories. But before we get kind of macro on the book of Ruth, I want us to descend into the particulars. So I'm curious, does any of your families kind of have an origin story for your kind of extended family? Mine does, right? Ours involves a dictator who is ruling a Latin American country with an iron fist and a violent communist revolution that was stirring up amongst the peasants to oppose him. And in 1947, one wealthy aristocratic family from Nicaragua decided to do the unthinkable 
And they put their four daughters on a boat bound for San Francisco. And these girls left without an adult companion in the hope that they might avoid the strife and the instability that was roiling their country. And one of those four young women was my grandmother, grandmother, Amada de Jesus Guerrero Gutierrez. And her life was about to change dramatically. My grandmother was an accomplished young woman. She held two master's degrees, one in French, one in accounting. She spoke multiple languages, none of which were English. She was a woman that was familiar with luxury. She was used to being waited on by servants. Their, Their ranch house, after the communists took over the country, was converted to a hotel And then all of a sudden, she finds herself living in a cramped immigrant boarding house, and she's found employment in a hotel kitchen as a prep cook by day and as a seamstress by night. And that's how our family story begins. And I'm not actually quite sure yet who the main character is of our family story. We could argue that it's my grandmother, but this could be the beginning of my kids' tale. The story is still unfolding. And the same thing is true with our little passage here in Ruth. We, we don't yet know who will be the hero in this biblical story. It seems like it's going to be Elimelech's story, but he doesn't make it out of the first five verses. But since this is our guy's only moment in the spotlight, I want to give Elimelech his due and dive into the story of a father on Father's Day. So our story begins in the days when the judges ruled. The author is trying to establish the setting for the story. He's writing that it takes place between that long period where Israel had already come out of slavery in Egypt. They've already begun to settle in the promised land that the Lord has given them. But it's before their little nation has crowned its first king. And there's a whole Old Testament book dedicated to this really fascinating time period. It's called the book of Judges. And while there's a lot that can be said about this time, I want to just give you the important information to help us understand our story this morning. You see, the time of the Judges was this era of national disobedience and spiritual faithlessness. God had instructed his people to fully drive out the previous inhabitants of their new homeland. But God's people had become complacent. It was strenuous work, and and God's people drew tired of the conflict. So they chose instead to kind of allow the land's previous occupants, the pagan Canaanites, to live among them. But soon God's people were adopting Canaanite ways. They were assimilating into the local culture, even to the point of they started worshiping the local gods and goddesses of the land. And in response, God removes his hand of protection from his people. And they start to fall victim to repeated invasions from their much stronger uh, tribes that are on their borders. You see, God had decided to test his people. If they would be loyal to him and devoted to his word, to his way of life, God would raise up deliverers for them. 
what Scripture calls judges who would rescue them from their oppressors. But if the Israelites chose to go their own way and give their loyalty, their devotion to other things, God would allow them to reap the consequences of their actions. And there's an iconic verse that sums up the time of the judges. It actually comes at the very end of the book of Judges, one verse before the start of the book of Ruth. It says in Judges 21-25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This could describe our day, couldn't it? In those days there was no unifying national leader and everyone lived their own truth, doing what was in their best interest regardless of the consequences. But then we have a man who takes center stage and his name is, wait for it, Elimelech. Nothing? Elimelech. Okay, you guys don't speak Hebrew. But the original audience would, and they would understand that this is like calling someone Washington or Lincoln. It is a name that has meaning. And the meaning of Elimelech is significant. It is, my God, he is king. Eli, my God, Melech, he is king. My God is king. In a time when the culture said there was no king in Israel, our guy stands up to declare, my God is the one true king and I need no other. And the audience who's hearing this story for the first time, they should be filled with hope. Here's going to be a figure like Noah who stands distinct in a faithless generation Someone who clings to the love and the truth and the justice of God. But as soon as that balloon of hope inflates, it bursts. Because the first thing we see Elimelech doing is hightailing it out of the promised land. He's running away from his God-given inheritance. He too is succumbing to doing what is right in his own eyes. Now, on the one hand, it is hard to blame him. His family is threatened with starvation as famine ravages their little town of Bethlehem, which is itself a brutal bit of irony because Bethlehem means the house of bread in the land of Judah, which means praise. This is supposed to be a place of abundance and celebration, a land flowing with milk and honey but the bread has run out and Elimelech is blindsided. You see, Elimelech enters this story as a man of status. He's an Ephrathite from Bethlehem. That means he's from the clan that founded the town. He's an aristocrat. He's a man of means. And he has a lovely family. His wife Naomi's name literally means loveliness. And he has two strapping boys who will carry on his name and care for him in his old age. But it seems like circumstances are humbling Elimelech. And we start to get these hints that things are beginning to take a turn for the worse for this family. 
basically by the way they name their sons. Uh, if you need ideas for future baby names, don't pick these ones because Malon means sickness and Kilion means annihilation. <laughs> so there's clearly a heaviness resting on this family and famine pushes Elimelech to the brink and he is compelled to take matters into his own hands. Ultimately, Elimelech makes a drastic decision. He and his family will become refugees. They'll pull up stakes and they'll relocate to the fertile plateau of Moab, which is about a week's journey northeast on foot. You see, the fields of Moab are just east of the Dead Sea in what is today the kingdom of Jordan. And it's a surprising move because Moab is Israel's bitter enemy, though they are related distantly through Abraham's nephew, Lot. But this is a huge risk. He's a desperate foreign refugee moving into hostile territory. At best, he's going to look at this precarious sort of life that has this high possibility of social ostracism and, and poverty. You see, Yahweh, Elimelech's God, he expressed a special concern for immigrants and refugees who lived in his land. But Elimelech wouldn't be in Israel. He'd be in Moab where a different deity reigned. The brutal god Chemosh who demanded that children be sacrificed on his altars. And it's unclear what kind of heart Chemosh will have towards a needy outsider in his midst. But at the end of the day, there is bread to be had in Moab. So that is where Elimelech is going. He's determined to do whatever it takes to secure his family's future, to put food in their bellies. Now, did Elimelech make the right choice to leave the promised land? I understand why he left, but in light of the results, it's hard to say that he made the right choice. The harsh reality is that Elimelech fled the promised land so he could secure his family's future, but the exact opposite happened. Life in Moab was just one tragedy after another. Let me list the blows. Number one was this, Elimelech dies prematurely, which is always a bummer. Number two, both of his sons marry outside of the faith. Malon and Kilion choose for themselves Moabite brides as they integrate, as they assimilate into a new pagan culture. And I'm sure it's causing Elimelech to just turn in his grave because Devout Israelites had a really low view of the Moabites, particularly Moabite women. They were stereotyped as these dangerous temptresses who would use their sexual wiles to corrupt good God-fearing Israelite boys. And both his sons marry Moabite women. The third blow is this. Both his daughters-in-law remain childless for over 10 years which itself is a tragedy that becomes apparent when Elimelech's family line is annihilated. 
with both sons dying far from their native land. One of the biggest catastrophes in the eyes of a Jewish person would be buried in a pagan land far from home, and all three of them end up in Moab, father and both of his sons. And now lastly, Elimelech's elderly wife is left widowed and childless and bereft in this foreign land where she doesn't have the support of an extended family. She's homeless. She's destitute. She's defenseless in a, in a patriarchal society that has almost no way to care for an unattached woman. So Elimelech did what he thought was best to secure his family's future, but reaped only catastrophe and death. So what went wrong? Do you think Elimelech is in any way responsible for the disaster that befalls his family? Well, let me say that sometimes life does just go sideways. We live in a broken world that's been vandalized by evil, both human and natural. And sometimes it's no one's fault. It's just a consequence of living in a sin-sick world on a globe that is in desperate need of rescue. But in Elimelech's case, we can make some observations with confidence. The first is this, that Elimelech had a crisis of trust specifically in the character of God. Remember, he's Mr. My God. He is King. He knows God's character. He knows Yahweh, the God of his ancestor Abraham and his ancestor Isaac and his ancestor Jacob is a God who defines himself by one word, chesed. Have I taught you this Hebrew word before? Chesed? I've taught you Hevel when we did Ecclesiastes. Chesed is even better. It's my favorite word in any language. So say it with me. Chesed. Good. You got it. It is God's primary attribute in the Old Testament. And there's no direct English equivalent for it, which is why you'll see it translated a variety of ways in your English Bibles. But here's what it means in a nutshell. Chesed is God's extraordinary loyalty and gracious devotion to those whom he calls his own. Extraordinary loyalty and gracious devotion to those to whom he calls his own. Chesed can be experienced as kindness or mercy or faithfulness. It could be seen in God's loyalty to his covenant relationships and his steadfast love for his people. And God's hesed, it is expansive. It's not this narrow thing. It's always spilling over onto those who do not expect it to the benefit of those who least deserve it. It is God's hesed that makes him trustworthy. It is his hesed that makes him a stronghold and an ever-present help to those in need. But when circumstances take a dark turn, it is exactly God's chesed that Elimelech starts to doubt. 
His God is great, and Elimelech's been a faithful Israelite all his life, but now nothing feels like it's proving sure anymore. And so he's like, how do I know that God will prove sure? We've got crops failing, and and his sons are going to bed hungry. Can God really be trusted with something as practical as keeping food on the table? We do this too, right? We lose our job, or our health hits a hiccup, or our family situation starts to get difficult, and it throws us into a turmoil of doubt. Is God really who he says he is? Is he even involved or paying attention? Will he really live up to all those nice things that we sing about him in church? And in light of this crisis of trust, Elimelech chose to seize control of the leadership of his own life. In Elimelech's estimation, he could no longer afford to sit back and let God be king. He needed to seize the initiative, forge his own future. He would be savior for his family and bend reality to his will he would be the heroic rescuer that his family needed. Let's stop there for a second. What would it have looked like if Elimelech kept God in that place of leadership in his life? I think it would have meant him asking two questions about his looming decision to pick up and go to Moab. And the first question would be this, what does the Bible say? What does God's word say about this matter? God's word is often not as silent as we imagine on the situations we face. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his ancestors all had to wrestle with whether or not to leave the promised land during a time of famine. Abraham did And it was a mess. Read it in Genesis. Isaac faces the same situation. And he receives explicit instructions from God to stick it out in the land and to trust him. Jacob left for Egypt, but only after God expressly told him to do so. So there's three examples in Scripture that Elimelech could have wrestled with and prayerfully considered. The second question that Elimelech could have asked is a bit more broad. How does this decision conform with the moral will of God? Even if God's word doesn't address our situation directly, I do think scripture gives us great insight into what God values and what God desires for us. The Bible teaches us how we ought to think and believe, what we ought to value and honor, and from that, how we should live. We're not left without instruction. And here in the time of the judges, God was inviting his people to faithfulness. He was eager for families like Elimelech's to stand distinct from their pagan neighbors to not assimilate to their culture or adopt their way of life. 
So it seems that God's moral will would have been guiding Elimelech away from diving headfirst into Moabite culture. But at this point, Elimelech's not seeking God's guidance. He's not sure he's willing to trust God in this case, heedless of God and his will. He steps out from under God's protection, from out from under his wing of refuge. He thought that this was the only way to secure his future, to protect his family. So he stepped out and life hammered him. The things and the places he looked to in his desperation proved to be no refuge at all. And Moab just swallowed him up whole. And it's tragic. Has this ever been your story? It's been mine. Hard times come and you freak out. And we we pitch God out the window Mostly because we're blaming him for letting the bad times come in the first place. And instead we say, okay, we'll deal with this. We'll take all sorts of dramatic action. We'll do what we think is best regardless of the long-term consequences. Yet instead of finding relief, life beats us down even more, leaving us worse off than we were at the beginning of the difficulty. And it brings to mind that proverb from Proverbs 12.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I'm sure there are dozens who could get up here today and give that testimony that I thought this was the path I needed to walk, but it led to destruction. So often, Elimelech's story is not far from our own. But what's the other option? What's the way of life that God invites us to walk in instead? Well, I think it's this. Simply put, God invites us to trust Him and to depend upon His hesed. His extraordinary loyalty and His relentless Gracious devotion to those whom he calls his own. Trust me and depend upon my faithfulness to you. So we say, okay, I believe. Help my unbelief. How do we do this? And here, I think, is God's wisdom. If you seek to trust God more, we need to fortify our minds as to the nature of of his character. There's a great quote from uh, A.W. Tozer. He says this, What comes, to, comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. It's Elimelech's mental image of God that starts to falter, so he flees from God. But Tozer is saying, fortify your mind as to who God is and draw near to Him. Elimelech's a bad example of this, but Scripture gives us good examples as well. 
The prophet Jeremiah will experience what is arguably the worst moment in his nation's history. They're conquered. They're taken away into exile. The bottom falls out of his life. It falls out of the the bottom falls out for his community. They experience tragedy upon tragedy. But we have this example of in his low moments, he fortifies his mind as to who his God is. We have this great book called Lamentations, and I want to read just a portion of it to you this morning. He says this, Jeremiah is speaking, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord, the chesed of the Lord, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Do you see what Jeremiah is doing there? He's fortifying his mind as to who his God is. He's acknowledging his fears and doubts, but he's clinging to God and he's reminding himself of God's character. The steadfast love of God will never cease. Because of his steadfast love, will never be cut off. His mercies won't end. They won't fail They'll be new tomorrow morning because that's who my God is and His faithfulness defines Him. It's His faithfulness that makes Him great. So how do we call this to mind day in and day out? How do we remember who it is who has rescued us? I think in part, this is why we sing worship songs. Because the tunes get stuck in our minds and the words get stuck in our heart about who our God is. Remember what Rachel sang this morning. I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. So yes, I will lift you high when I'm in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. I'll sing for joy when my heart is heavy. All my days, yes, I will. Because you are the God that never fails. Every time we sing songs like that, they're an act of faith. It's fortifying our mind to who our God is. It's the same reason we read Scripture throughout the week in those quiet moments of our days because we get to hear God's stories. These stories of God's faithfulness. Of who He's been in real people's lives. Of how He's shown up in their times of need. So we read and we bring it to mind. We talked about this last week, but prayer too is one of those acts of faith where we enact through our conversation with God our knowledge of who He is. 
We pray to Him because our God is a God who hears, a God who is near to the brokenhearted, a God who will prove Himself strong in our lives as He glorifies His name. So we stop and we pray because it teaches our hearts and our minds that that's who He is. He wants to hear from His kids. He wants us to depend on Him. He knows our needs, but it's the act of prayer that teaches us that our God is a God who listens and who will meet us in our hour of need. Fortify your minds to who our God is. Sometimes we do this. My wife has a tendency to just plaster Scripture all over our house. So that when we wake up and we're in the everyday moments of our regular days, we can see something that brings to mind, yes, that's what God has said. That's who He is. He's extraordinarily loyal. He's graciously devoted to us, even though we don't deserve it. This is also why I've always had this dream, but I've never done it. I'm probably still going to chicken out and will never do it. But I've always dreamed of having two tattoos. And my wife, who is an ICU nurse, says, don't do it there because that's where the IVs go in. So I've never done it. But I've always wanted to have two words on my body. One is the Hebrew word chesed, right? This is God's character, his dogged devotion to us. I'd love to have that on one wrist. Old Testament, chesed. That's who God is. And on the other wrist, I'd love to have a New Testament word, the Greek word zoe, which is the Greek word for life. And not just biological life, but this sort of life that is victorious and unquenchable. Because my Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. And just the thought of looking at those two words of who my God is every day, I imagine, would fortify my mind. But I haven't done it. Probably won't. But I might do it in Sharpie this week just to see what it's like. But this is our invitation. This is our first step. Fortify our mind as to God's character because then with hope and with patient endurance, we seek to live our lives within the bounds of God's land of promise. We seek to stay in that place where God says this is the way of life, even though it might not feel like it, even though circumstances might be going haywire and things are crashing down. Trust me, this is the path, the trail that leads to life because we trust who God is. You see, Elimelech chose to live life outside of those bounds of God's wisdom, outside of the bounds of God's way, and it led to heartache and destruction. But I encourage you, let's choose to live differently. Let's choose to stick it out in the land of promise, confident that our God of chesed will show up. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to leave Ruth and her clan there today and let us pray. Dear God, Lord, I pray again for fathers. 
for people that you've placed in, in places of leadership, in families. God, we often think that it is our job to fix things, our job to make things happen, and often we are tempted to do it by whatever means are necessary, God. But we want to lead our families in ways of life, not destruction. So God, we choose to submit to your leadership in your li- our lives. All of us, God. We choose to seek your wisdom. We choose to fortify our understanding of who you are and to trust in you. God, lead us in your ways everlasting. Use us to be a blessing. Give us the courage to believe and to hope and to cling to you even when things are hard and challenging and falling down around us. As you are forever devoted, graciously devoted to us, you seek your kids best. You are our good father. And we love you and we trust you. Give us the courage and the faith to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.